Garrett Reisman is a senior advisor at SpaceX, a former astronaut at NASA, and a professor of astronautical engineering at University of Southern California. Thanks so much for your time. Big fan of yours. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. Oh, my the, pleasure. Can I ask where you're based? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles right now at my home. Um, and uh, I do, you know, for, for work, I, I'm at USC, which is down the little ways down the road. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 where I'm most of the time. Nice. I've interviewed. I spoke with Terry Burtz. Mm hmm recently and i've also spoken with dominique diagostino are you familiar with him and so he he is in a totally different field he's a he's a professor at university of south florida he's sort of industry leading expert on the ketogenic diet but the reason i asked is because he was part of this uh project project called nemo yeah um, yeah i was part of nemo too yeah yeah so was he, he, was he through uh so he did uh, he so he was, it was actually part of nemo with nasa not just the aquarius habitat uh he must have been one of the so they usually would send um you know like three or four astronauts and then it was, they would add one other person that could be a scientist or it could be an uh an engineer or an operations person uh that was not part of the astronaut office we had uh a scientist that came along with us on our uh um biomedical engineer that came along with us in ours. So maybe he was one of those. Yeah. So he was, a, uh, he was one of the non-astronauts on that trip. Mm. He, but there've been a lot of different Nemo's. So he wasn't part of, I, I was on Nemo five and I think they're up to like, I don't know, Nemo, Nemo 30 or something by now. So I see that's Nemo 22. So that's well after I left NASA at that point. I see. I see. Okay. But so it sounds like there's a, there's a second degree connection there. So, so just to dive right into it, Garrett, I wanted to kind of go deeper into some of the stories that you've talked about to get, get insight on not your achievements, but what goes on behind the scenes. You know, what's, what, what, what goes on in your head and, and what's beneath the tip of the iceberg that everyone sees that's created you and your success. So I know that becoming an astronaut, you have to overcome a lot of hurdles starting as an engineer, it's a long path, but even more so to do spacewalks. What, what gave you the advantage over, what, what, what advantage you did you create for yourself or did you have to do to, to edge out other astronauts and get selected for the spacewalks? Um, mostly I, I, I poisoned their food. Uh, so, you know, they, when they weren't looking, I would slip a little something into their drink or whatever, just to so that then they would get into the training facilities and they would uh, yeah, they nice. wouldn't perform well. So, yeah, it was mostly that a uh, little bit of uh, blackmail and uh, extortion. And I, mostly, I, I, I love extortion. If my question was poorly phrased, I apologize. I'm not, <laughs> I don't mean to imply I, maybe it was poorly phrased. What, what I mean to say is, yeah, what um, I mean, all these, you know, all, all the astronauts are very smart, hardworking. Um, did, did, was there maybe a secret ingredient you felt that you had or, or, or a focus or mindset that you felt helped, helped you achieve that? Well, yeah, it's, it's specifically about getting to do a spacewalk because not everybody gets to do a spacewalk, as you pointed out. Um, uh, I think the only thing I would, if I had to sum up, you know, how I got through that and be serious for a moment, I would say determination was key because 
I was at a, I was at an inherent disadvantage. Um, now your your audience is listening to me right now, and you can't see me, so you don't know necessarily that I'm pretty vertically challenged. Uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm about five foot five on a good day, uh, and um, and that's basically a disadvantage. I remember once I went uh, when when you interview to become an astronaut, they tell you to go around and talk to the current astronauts to find out what the job is all about and uh, i talked to this one guy uh in his office right after we got a presentation about spacewalking and and i was all jazzed up i was like wow spacewalks seem like to be basically the coolest possible thing you could do with in your life so i was really hopeful that not only that i would get picked and be an astronaut but that even more that i would one day get to do a spacewalk and i mentioned this to him and i said hey you know i've been living in southern california i've been doing a bunch of rock climbing and scuba diving. So maybe some of those skills would be transferable and make me a good candidate to do a spacewalk. And this uh, tall fellow, he, was, he happened to be a very, he was probably about six foot three or so. He looked down at me, uh, literally, and he said, uh, well, he, he didn't say anything. He just laughed in my face. He was like, he was like, you're, you're way too short to do a, a spacewalk. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. What do you like? four foot what how tall are you right and uh so i so so i was like man you know i, I thought a couple things at that moment one i thought wow and i thought astronauts were supposed to be polite and uh this guy was not being very polite he was laughing in my face literally and but then the second thought i had was well i'm not gonna let this guy tell me what i can or cannot do and i'm gonna give this thing a shot so i got the job i got selected and i showed up to do my training and they sent me over to the big pool, the neutral buoyancy laboratory in Houston, where we do our spacewalk training. And uh, they said, uh, OK, get in the suit and you're going to do your first exercise. And I got in there and I could tell, like in the first five minutes of uh, being in that suit, that that big, tall astronaut that laughed in my face was right. Uh, I was at a big disadvantage. Was this when they had already said, OK, you might be doing a spacewalk? And that's why you're doing the training or this was just general training? This is a basic training. So every astronaut uh, in, in your first year or so, first year or two, goes through some basic uh, EVA or spacewalk training. Uh, so it's during that during one of those first training events that you do. I see. I see. OK. And so yeah, everybody gets to do this. Not everybody gets called back for the next round, uh, the, the more advanced training. So this is just a basic training. So I got in there and, and I didn't do well that first. Um, exercise for me went very poorly and i got a um i got a my, my grade you get graded on everything you do as an astronaut you, you don't do anything just like for fun you, you 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 uh even the very first introductory lesson you get a grade and my grade on that was uh needs improvement which was a, the polite nasa way of saying uh you failed right so i was not doing well and so I knew that I was at a big disadvantage and, and that uh, this was not going to come easy, but I wasn't ready to give up and say, OK, I'll go do something else. Maybe I'll focus on robotics or something. I, I was determined to, to keep trying. So I went I, and I knew I was going to need help, though. So I went and I talked to uh, the people that make the suit and I said, look, you know, this thing doesn't fit me very well. I'm a little guy. What can you do? And they're like, well, maybe we can make the arms a little shorter. Maybe we could use a different uh set of adapters i talked to the people that makes the tool make the tools and they're like oh wait you can use these different extensions and use these tools in a different way and most importantly i talked to my training team and they said yeah if you use 
the standard techniques, you're going to be at a disadvantage, but you know, maybe we can use different body positions. Maybe we could come up with different, uh, uh, tools, different ways of, of, of getting, or of, of translating. And eventually, you know, we worked at it and eventually I got better and better. And eventually I got all the way to the point where I was qualified to do the most difficult spacewalks that NASA does. And, uh, and in fact, I, I led one of those. So over the course of my career, I did three spacewalks and Oh, by the way, that, Big tall astronaut that laughed in my face. He, you know how many he did? None. That's right, none. Yeah, he yeah. failed out. So when so when you first got in the water, uh-huh. yeah, I just want to get my vengeance. Well, let me ask. So did you ever get to, you know, go back to him and say like, hey, look, you know, look at me? I think uh, I, I don't think that was necessary. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think you know uh, when I was out there floating around in my spacesuit. And so, and he wasn't that that was probably uh, victory enough at that right, point. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. So when you when you first started training, you, you were you're, you know, falling behind, but it was really because of the the equipment. Um, and then they made the adjustments and things got easier. So then so then at some point you're you're probably on par with everyone else. You know, once they made the adjustments, you were no longer suffering from as, from as much of a disadvantage with the, the weight and, and the the, the, um, the rigidity of the equipment. Well, then, I, it was still like your ideal body type for for doing a spacewalk is basically like an orangutan, incredibly long arms and a relatively short trunk. I think I have the short trunk bit, but my arms are pretty stubby. Uh, and so I, that disadvantage was with me the whole time. I think it, it wasn't ever that I neutralized that necessarily or uh, uh, it was more that I just learned to work with it. And then how did you not only work with it, but, but surpass your peers? Uh, by working really hard. Uh, I just, I just really, really kept, kept at it, kept working on it, kept trying and, and continuously trying to improve, keep trying to find ways to do it better. Analyzing every, every, every time I went out for a training event, I would stare at the films afterwards and try to come up with ways of improving and uh, just a continuous effort. You, you really wanted it and you, you were, you know, determined and you not just during it, but then after in, in terms of informing yourself to iterate most effectively, you would, you look at the tapes, you figure out where were my errors? How do I, how do I correct for them? Yeah. So it sounds like it was determination and also the, like the ability to be humble, to, to look for your flaws and to, to make changes based on them. And, and ask for help, you know, to get, to, to get help and uh, not try to just do it all myself, but yeah. But try to get help from other people who, uh, including other astronauts that were experienced in spacewalking that uh, could, could could give me a good advice. Okay, so se- a separate conversation, I mean, it, it kind of leads into that. So you did three spacewalks. Uh, during the second one, you, you solved a unique problem. Uh, you could talk about this in more detail than, than I can, but on a, on a really high level, surface level, you were outside the ship, you had to get a, a cord to connect and it wouldn't connect. And what, and I, I hesitate to tell the story because I don't want to butcher it, but basically you, you use sort of this impromptu creative thinking to come up with a solution that ends up uh, working. So I'm wondering, could you give a high level overview of the story? And then um, I, I'm, I'm curious to, to, to learn what would happen if you didn't come up with a solution? Mm. 
Uh, well, so this was on, uh, on my second mission and the first spacewalk in the mission, we had one of our primary objectives was to install a new antenna on top of the space station. And I was uh, holding this thing and it came in two pieces. So there was a pedestal, basically a big base, which is like a big um, platform that uh, uh, kind of a big cylinder, a, a column that the, that the antenna would go on top of. And then the antenna would mount on top of that. And, and they would connect mechanically with bolts. You just bolt the antenna base onto the top of the, the, the column. But there's also an electrical connector that carried power and data from the space station up to the antenna, which is a big giant dish that sat on top of the uh, um, pedestal. So we got the, the, we got the base up there, the pedestal. We got that uh, bolted on and connected. That, that went fine. And then I was coming back and I was on, standing on the end of the space station robot arm and I was holding this big giant dish antenna. Think about like a giant direct TV dish kind of thing, but uh, bigger. And uh, we connected it mechanically just fine. We bolted it on, but then we went to connect the, the electrical connector, the plug, and it wouldn't go in. The male part was too thick and it wouldn't fit into the female part. And it, um, it just wouldn't it, it just wouldn't fit. And this was really bad because uh, it without connecting this wire, you wouldn't be able to get any power to it. And so it wouldn't get any heat. And the electronics eventually, if you stick it out there in space for too long without getting power to it, the electronics would get so cold that they would fail and, 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 and the antenna would be worthless. And this major mission objective of this, you know, multiple hundred million dollar mission uh, would 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 be lost if we couldn't get this thing plugged in and and we had an estimate based on thermal models on like how long we had before we had to get power to it and we were running out of time so the clock was ticking and and we tried so we tried pushing really hard because we were very desperate to to fix this thing and 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 not lose this this very expensive piece of equipment and a major mission objective so we were like shoving like crazy the guys inside the space station said they could feel the whole space station moving. We were pushing so hard to try to get this connector in. And, you know, um, it, and it just wouldn't go. And, and so uh, and, and, and then we looked and we saw that there's some little metal shavings that were coming loose because we we're we we're pushing so hard. It was rubbing together and, and it was starting to flake off. And that's really bad because those little metal shavings, if they float into the pins, they can cause a short circuit and that could destroy the thing, too. So anyway, this was all going horribly wrong. And, um, and, 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 and then I had this idea, which was, I, I asked the, the pilot of our, our space shuttle mission, uh, who was also coordinating things from inside the spacecraft, how long until the sun comes up? Because it was the middle of the, the orbital night. So the sun was on the other side of the earth. We were in the earth's shadow and it was all darkness. And in space, when you're in the shadow, when the sun is blocked and, and uh, you're not in the sunlight, things get very, very cold. And but on the other hand, when the sun shines on you, you things get really, really hot and it could be plus or minus a couple hundred degrees Fahrenheit difference between in the shade and in the sun, because uh, the radiation is the only kind of heat transfer you get up there. And so so I asked him, so when's the sun coming up? And he said, oh, sunrise is in 10 minutes. I said, OK, perfect. So what I did is I took the male part of that connector and I stuck it in the shade uh, behind that behind that that column and i also put it in my insulated hand and i waited for the sun to come up and hit the female part of the connector 
and and so the female part of the connector in the sun got very very hot and then you get thermal expansion you know it it, it 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 when you heat up metal it expands and the cold male connector stayed did not expand and so i waited a few minutes and i took out that that connector that i had in my hand and it slid right into the female connector perfectly closed the the the, the little bar that 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 makes it that locks it shut and and it worked and so that was the end so so that was my big victory in space, you know, like in the movies, astronauts get to do some really impressive things like like Brad Pitt in the movie recently. He saved the whole solar system. And like I think uh, Bruce Willis and Armageddon, he saved the whole planet Earth from a deadly asteroid. I saved an antenna, which is not nearly as impressive it's as saving a whole solar system. But, you know, it's something. All right. So that's my yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, so the, so how much was so it was it was it was a monetary potential loss. So there wasn't a safety risk, it sounds like. Well, it's not just it wasn't just that we'd be lo losing finance, the financial value of this uh, antenna, which was a very expensive piece of hardware. And there would be a financial loss, but it's also an operational loss, because without this antenna, the space station is, uh, would lose communications with a single point. There's no redundancy. This antenna was offering redundancy to the system. So if there was an, if there was a subsequent failure of the other antenna, uh, or anything in the chain, the electronics, the cabling, you know, any of the things that are, you need. If any one of those things broke, you would lose all KU band com to the space station. Oh, uh, and, and so it wasn't just that we lost, we would lose a lot of money. We would also lose capability potentially or, right. or redundancy. And that's a safety concern. Like that's a yeah, it could be a safety concern in certain circumstances. It's really more of, of uh, operational uh, uh, mission success concern because you need that high speed, uh, the high bandwidth data link um, in order to send all the science data back down to, and uh, another video down to the ground. So without the KU band system, you won't be able to send a lot of the, the results of the science experiments down to the ground. And and so a lot of the a lot of the, the objectives will be lost, the science objectives. It wasn't really a safety thing because you can still talk to the ground using the S-band system. I see, I see. And and they can still command the space station using the S-band system, but you would lose all the all the you you basically just wouldn't have any video. You'd be down to text only. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow. Well, it's amazing you figured that out. So, do you remember the moment when you're you're trying to get the cords to connect and it's not working? Do you remember the instant that you realized, wait a second, what about the sun? Like, did it occur spontaneously to you or? I remember having that conversation with the pilot. I can't remember exactly how it popped into my head that that we could try this temperature difference thing. I, it, it, you know, it's something that um, it's not like I invented this technique. Uh, it's, it's something that is is relatively commonly used in uh, by machinists and by mechanics. For example, to get a bearing on an axle, uh, often you'll heat up the bearing and slide it over the cold axle to get clearance, and then when it cools, it it uh it gets locked into place so so this idea of using thermal expansion to increase or decrease clearance is something that has been done before and somewhere i don't know exactly where that technique was made known to me it might have been by talking to people working on when i was working on my truck or uh or maybe in a, in a shop sometime i i don't remember exactly when uh i that that technique, but, but it, was, it wasn't something I invented on the spot. It was something, I, I, it was based on um, a similar technique that was used for some other purpose. 
Right. You, you applied the general concept of heating, yeah. but in a very different context. Right. Which is by different. So, so in, I teach a course at USC um, about, uh, about, about function allocation and, 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 and basically hum, using humans in the loop versus uh, machines and when it's proper to use a machine, when, uh, when it's proper to use a human, or when it's best to use a combination of the two. What types of tasks are best suited for people? What's, what's, which ones are best left to the computer? And, and I use this um, story as an example of the things that, that humans bring to the table, which is the ability to be flexible and adaptable when circumstances turn out to be different from what you envisioned. Um, now with AI and other and machine learning, we're starting to get to the point where machines can do this too, but they still are far uh, far removed from the, what humans are capable of doing in, 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 in those kinds of circumstances. Um, so, you know, it, it was, yeah, it, it was an example of, of that, of that adaptability. If you didn't, um, if you're using a robot to do this task and you didn't have this identified as a potential solution, should this problem occur and the software wasn't designed to do this technique of, insulating the one connector and heating up the other connector uh you you would be out of luck you would you would lose the mission um but that's that's the thing where where and it's also an example of of the use of human expertise in a uncertain environment so we we uh, one of the other things that teaches is is the um uh basically you can have a skill-based task a rules-based task a knowledge-based task or an expertise-based task and a skills-based test is something, for example, just minimizing an error. So it's like pointing, staying in your lane while you're driving your car. That's a skill, okay? It, it's just, and the machines could do that quite well as long as the lanes are clearly marked. And we have cars now that can do that without humans. Um, Rules-based tests are like when you follow a procedure. So, so, and usually the hard thing there is figuring out which rules to apply, but it's like following a recipe to bake a cake. That's that's a rules based task. And then a, a, a knowledge based task is where you teach somebody something. And even though they might not have seen it before, they were told in their training, hey, if this happens, then you should do this. And they could recall that training and make the proper decision at the time. That's a that would be a knowledge based task. But the expertise based task is where humans really shine and where where machines struggle. And that's where you have to use a wide base of experience. So at some point I got exposed to this concept that if you heat metal, it expands, you know, some point in my life in an engineering class or in a, in a garage somewhere, you know, I got, I got exposed to this. I don't know when it happened or exactly where, but somehow they got lodged into my brain and I did what humans are really good at, which is searching through a very long-term memory bank, which a computer computer probably would have, done some kind of disk cleanup a long time ago and deleted that thing. But it was still stuck in there because humans are good at holding on to something for a very long time without even know that knowing that they're doing it and then recalling it at a moment when it can be handy. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And then so I used I never experienced this particular situation. I never experienced an electrical connector in space in a vacuum where there was a mechanical interference and it couldn't fit. And I never even got trained on what to do in that. You know, we never discussed it. Nobody told me if this happens, heat up one side and cool the other side. And that would be a knowledge-based task if somebody had trained me, but nobody had. So I used my expertise. I used my 
experience and my long-term memory to come up with something that was related, even though, and apply it to this new circumstance that, that was a completely different scenario, a completely different specific circumstance that was, that was not foreseen, but still reach a, a successful conclusion. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's what, that's what humans do. Wow. That's, that's, that, wow. That, that's very interesting um, about, Right, machines have the power to 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 do quick, repetitive tasks, but in terms of creativity, regurgitating uh, ancillary, seemingly un, maybe unrelated knowledge and applying it to a present circumstance is uniquely human, at least currently. Right. Um, and I see, and, and and that that sort of like constitutes the fundamentals of creativity. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. When you've you've also done uh, deep sea, or not deep sea, but but missions underwater what what um what have you seen there that fascinates you the most it wasn't that deep it was only about 60 feet so <laughs> but uh but we, we did stay down there for a couple of weeks and uh as part of this analog that we did to get ready to, to do a, a mission on the space station and uh yeah we saw some really cool stuff down there it was um it, it was a it was really a, a great uh, a, a very interesting experience. The the um, I, it, so I, you know I, I did a whole lot of recreational scuba diving before I ever went and did this uh, Nemo expedition, and so I, I had seen plenty of uh, sea life before. But the thing that was different about this was um, how long we got to spend under there. So so not first of all we got to do these really long scuba dives because we were saturation diving. So normally if you're doing a recreational scuba dive down to sixty feet you can only stay down there for 60 minutes. And after an hour, you really need to be heading back up because otherwise you risk something called the bends or uh, decompression sickness. And um, so, but, but if you, the whole problem is coming back up. So if you stay down there for longer than 60 minutes and then you come back up, you can get seriously injured uh, or even die. How's, how is that? Like, what are... uh, that's because uh, of something that, that, they used to call Quezon's disease and then they called it the Benz and now we call it DCS. What, what happens is there's, there's dissolved gas, all liquids can dissolve gases. Uh, think about um, when, you, uh, when you open up a can of, of soda, a can of Coke, for example, when you crack open the top or a beer for that matter, uh, bubbles come out. And in the case of the soda anyway, that's carbon dioxide which was dissolved inside the liquid. But once you reduce the pressure on the liquid, that it comes out of solution and it bubbles, the bubbles come out, right? Well, our blood is a liquid and it can, and, and what it, uh, it's saturated with nitrogen. And it's usually um, just fine because we're all exist at one pressure, which is one atmosphere pressure or 14.7 uh, PSI, right? Um, and so, and so we have all this all this nitrogen in our blood, but it stays in there because the pressure doesn't usually change very much. Now, if you go 60 feet underwater, you're at close to three atmospheres of pressure instead of just one. And what that does is it shoves more nitrogen into your blood. Your blood can now absorb more, just like the, the can of soda that was under pressure can absorb more carbon dioxide. Our blood can absorb more nitrogen when we're at a high pressure. And so over the course of that hour, your, your blood is getting more and more nitrogen. And if you keep going beyond an hour, it will get more, even more, until it eventually becomes saturated at the new pressure, which is at about three, at three atmospheres. 
So when you go back up to one atmosphere at the end of the dive, if you stay too long, now it's like opening up that can of Coke and all the bubbles come out. So all the nitrogen comes out of solution in your blood and it bubbles up. Now you got these little pockets of gaseous nitrogen, these little bubbles of gas going through your bloodstream and that can kill you. That can be really, that can be really bad. Um, so, so we don't, so we don't stay long enough to let that happen. But here's the thing. If you stay at three atmospheres, it's going to be fine. The problem is only when you come back up. So if you stay down there, there's no, there's no issues. So what we did on this, on this dive is instead of staying down there for 60 minutes, we stayed down there for two weeks. And as long as you don't come back up, you're, you're, you can stay perfectly healthy. And so the neat thing about that is instead of doing scuba dives that last an hour, you can do scuba dives that last eight hours. Uh, and you could just look out the window of the habitat and see all kinds of amazing things all the time. So we saw hammerhead sharks. We saw these massive Goliath groupers that were magnificent. They were size of cows and the weight of cows, you know, these massive fish. We saw these big bait balls with these like giant schools of fish that, uh, and we watched the hammerheads, you know, corral them and, 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 and feast on them. These massive school of barracuda that were just beautiful. And the way they would all line up in the current, they all look like wind socks, but all flying in formation. It was just spectacular. Oh. And um, but I think that the thing that the, all that time affords is the ability to e really examine stuff close up. So I'm tempted to say to answer your question by uh, pointing to one of those really big things like the like the Goliath grouper or, or the hammerheads. But but actually, I think the thing that impressed me the most down there was a shrimp. Uh, we did this one dive at night. And when you have all this time, you can actually sit there and, and focus on things that you would just probably just swim right, right by and not, and not pay any heed if you only have uh, 60 minutes. But but since we had all that time, I remember sitting there one night with my my flashlight in the in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm under I'm at the bottom of the ocean in the middle of the night. And I got this one light and I'm shining and I'm on this coral reef and I'm shining this light on this one shrimp. And it was really beautiful. It was it was really small. Uh and they call it a shrimp after all. Right. And, and but it was it was translucent. So you can see through it and you can see its organs and you can see it also had this bioluminescence. So it was creating these lights, these colorful lights. Uh, and and I, I stared at that thing for a long time and just just watched this little tiny. It was like a bug, you know, like it's the size of a cricket. But um, I just sat there and, and I was fascinated by it. And I still remember that. And I also remember coming back in after that dive and I was hungry and I wanted, you know, after being out there for that long and, and I wanted to have a bite to eat and I went through our provisions and, and the thing that looked really appetizing, we, we were eating all space food down there. Okay. Cause part of the objective was to get used to the whole environment and try to make it as similar down there as it would be up on the space station. So we had all this dehydrated, irradiated, uh, thermostabilized food, which is what we eat in space. And one of those most, the one of the more tasty um, dishes that we have is a uh, shrimp cocktail. And so I grabbed that thing thinking, oh, this will taste good. But then I thought about that beautiful shrimp out there and I couldn't do it. So I put the shrimp cocktail back and I ate something else. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So when, when you were observing that shrimp, uh, it's translucence and able to see its organs. Uh, what were you thinking? 
I, I really, at that point, I was just really enjoying the opportunity to sit there and just take and just soak it in and really just kind of appreciate it. Uh, this creature for, for how beautiful it was and just how, uh, it, it was also just also, it was very surprising. I mean, it's, it's not like what you expect, you know, if, when you look at something that close up, you realize that it almost didn't look, it looked alien. I mean, it almost didn't look terrestrial. I mean, it, the, the way you could see through its shell, the way, the way it was producing light, it was like looking at something in, in a movie. It was just, it was really fun. It was really just fun to watch it. Yeah. It's, it must've like, you know, you, you've been out in space, you know, beyond, beyond earth, but, but this tiny thing, sixty feet below the surface, uh, yeah, like is as captivating, right? I mean, it, it, yeah, you know. it was interesting when you're out there for a long time, and and and, and especially at night, uh, there were all the and you shine your flashlight around. There were all these little creatures floating in the water, and it really feels like when you just and if you just sit there in the sand with the with the coral around you. Um, it really felt like I was in a forest and this is, this is going to sound weird, but, and I didn't do it, but it felt like I could take off my mask and take off my regulator and that, that I was not in an ocean, but rather I was sitting, uh, sitting in at night on the floor of a forest with, with a lot of bugs, you know, um, insects flying around and, um, it felt just like that. Wow. Huh. Yeah. And it, well, it's a whole different, you know, universe, just 60 feet below. Yeah.